any other American president, yet he never joined a church. What were Lincoln's religious beliefs? We'll talk about this and other questions with our guest, Dr. Alan C. Gelzo, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to your national park, people. I'm the park ranger. This man is not a park ranger. I can answer any questions you might have. He can't answer anything. Uh, what if we see a bear? Uh, grab it by the tail and drag it back to me. But isn't that dangerous? Oh, please, I'll be fine. He's an imposter. And here at SPCS NET Yellow Pages, we'd like to remind our customers not to fall for that kind of stuff. That buffalo is actually quite tame. Go ahead and blow in his face. There's only one real SBCS NET Yellow Pages, the one you rely on. For more information, more ads, and more up-to-date listings. Now, if you really want to see a mountain lion, just wear this medallion around your neck. But isn't this steak? Yeah, it's a steak medallion. Now, get going. You'll see a pack of them pretty soon. Is it any wonder more people trust the SBC SNET Yellow Pages? Look for us online at smartpages.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today, talking with Dr. Alan C. Gelzo from Gettysburg College and author of, among other things, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President. Alan, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about Lincoln's uh, background, uh, some of the admirable traits uh, that you find in him. And we're getting into the always controversial subject of Lincoln's religion. You mentioned that his belief in an afterlife was uh, thin, even non-existent at times, and perhaps that was why he sought immortality in the memories of his countrymen, which he has certainly won. Uh, but what about that, uh, that, that question of Lincoln's religion? In, in 25 words or less, what did Lincoln think about religion? That Actually, varied. take all the words you want. I'm right. <laughs> that varied over time. He was born into a, a very devout household of strict Calvinistic Baptists. But he experienced what uh, a lot of young people experience when they become adolescents, and that was rebellion. And he rebelled against this straight, uh, straight-laced religious upbringing. And in his youth, uh, in fact, developed something of a risque reputation as an infidel. Uh, as a young adult, he is supposed to have written a pamphlet attacking uh, the divinity of Christ and uh, uh, special inspiration of the Bible. And uh, for the most part, he's, he is known among uh, his circle of friends, both in New Salem and then when he moves to Springfield, uh, not only as an unbeliever, uh, but in fact as someone who, uh, who, who just sort of likes poking people and irritating people by making fun of religion. The difficulty, of course, is that this is not a particularly good strategy for someone who aspires to political success. No. Uh, he was aware very early on uh, that uh, not being a member of a, of a church uh, was something that, uh, as he said, levied a tax of, of a considerable, considerable percent uh, upon his standing with, uh, with many religious voters. Um, 
so he has a lot of pressure on him to trim his sails somewhat. And in fact, uh, later on when he's running for Congress, uh, he's bitterly criticized for this by people who were looking for political advantage um, to, by suggesting that this was, a, this was an unbeliever and a mocker of religion, so much so that he has to issue a, a broadside throughout the, the, um, the congressional district that he's running from. Uh, in, in which he admits, you know, I, it's true, I'm, I'm not a member of any Christian church. However, I'm not hostile to religion. I've never said anything against religion. It was, it was a statement that managed to avoid saying what he thought by saying that it was untrue what these other people had said about him. But the fact was he, he did not belong to a church, never belonged to a church. Uh, one other pressure, though, on a more personal and realistic basis, which does tend to weaken his infidelity, are simply the personal losses that he that he sustains. Uh, he has to try to find a way of understanding and making sense of the universe. And he loses his second child, um, Edward Baker Lincoln, and that throws him into a a deeply depressed state of mind where the pastor of the local Presbyterian church, the first Presbyterian church in Springfield, uh, finds Lincoln entering into long discussions about providence and predestination with him. But it can't be said that too much changes in Lincoln's profile religiously until the war, uh, because the war presents him with a, a terrific problem about morality and right and wrong. Uh, Lincoln was fairly comfortable right up until he assumes office with this sort of deistic notion of God, God the the great clockmaker who sets everything going but doesn't really intervene in any personal or direct way. Uh, The Civil War upset all that tidy notion of of clockworthiness because, I mean, the assumption was that if, if God was in his heaven and everything was right in the world, then right would triumph and wrong would be overthrown. And between 1861 and 1862, that was exactly what didn't happen in the Civil War. Uh, The side of the right was losing and losing badly. The side of wrong, uh, the the Confederacy, the armies defending slavery, uh, seemed to be winning victory after victory. And that faced Lincoln with a situation where Lincoln had to give some closer scrutiny. Uh, to the idea of who God is and how God rules the universe. Uh, That leads him in the fall of 1862 to write a short memorandum on the will of God in which he basically points out both sides here thought the war was going to turn out differently. It has, has turned out in a way that no one expected, and that must mean that God has something else in view for this, for the result of the war than either side began the war with. And I think there's a bright line that links that memorandum with the Emancipation Proclamation, because Lincoln began to see the war and the prolonged carnage of the war in 1862 as a, as a divine message that some new thing needs to be introduced here that neither side had contemplated at the beginning. And when, in fact, he introduces the uh, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet in uh, September of 1862. He prefaces by saying, I I made a vow to God that if the Confederate armies were driven back across the Potomac, which they were after the Battle of Antietam uh, the week previous to this, uh, I would send the proclamation after them. 
I mean, he says that. We know he's, this, is, this is not one of those um, uh, apocryphal stories about Lincoln because two members of his cabinet wrote it down in their diaries. And one of them was so astounded that he, he actually asked Lincoln to repeat himself. He, he, was, he was so incredulous that this man with such a modest personal religious profile would justify this enormous change in public policy by you know, having had this interchange with the Almighty. Uh, he, he needed to hear that again before he could actually believe it. And yet, at the same time, as Lincoln is willing to make more and more increasingly theological religious statements about the nature of the war, culminating in the second inaugural. He still never joins a church, never identifies himself with a denomination, never, in fact, sketches out the details of his own personal religious convictions, leaving people still to scratch their heads and wonder just what did this man believe. One thing's for certain, though, Jerry, um, no matter what he believed, he certainly knew enough to give a remarkably skillful and, and patterned religious understanding of what the crisis of the Civil War was about for all Americans. Well, he, there's a couple angles I'm curious to ask you about here, um, drawing on some work done by other people in the field. Uh, on the one hand, there, there's the argument has been made. Richard Carradine has argued that Lincoln could speak the language of religious America mm-hmm. perfectly. Yes. That he could use the right cadences, the right words, the right biblical references to show that even though he was not a member of any particular denomination, he was of that world and could communicate with the the northern clergy and. Uh, northern congregations in, in a way that, that made him not seem uh, uh, the enemy, uh, an, an alien, even though he was not part of their particular church. And in so doing, uh, and I think Carverdine is absolutely right in saying so, I think in so doing that illustrates something that, that Carverdine, in fact, had talked about at great length in one of his earlier books on Protestant evangelicals and the Whig Party in the decades before the Civil War. The two great parties that dominate um, the, the the decades of Lincoln's adult maturity, the Democrats and the Whigs, uh, were were bitterly divided over many issues, but they also were bitterly divided in terms of their their culture, their values. Uh, whereas the Democrats of Jackson's day and the generations after Andrew Jackson were <laughs> very much hardcore. Jeffersonian wall of separation between church and state, the Whig Party tended to appeal very strongly to a kind of middle-class religious Protestant work ethic morality. And you would find Whig leaders who themselves were not necessarily very religious. The most famous Whig leader, Henry Clay, in fact, was a notorious gambler and womanizer. But nevertheless, they would still, even if they didn't walk the walk, they were still happy to talk the talk use the religious vocabulary and thereby make uh, religious Protestants, Protestant evangelicals especially, part of the overall Whig uh, political coalition. And it wasn't just a cynical fishing for votes either. There were some real valences between secular Whigs who talked in terms of the, the importance of thriftiness and of minding one's business uh, and prudence in public affairs, 
there, there was a, almost a natural glue to the virtues, the personal moral virtues promoted by Protestant evangelicals. We know that Lincoln was a Whig from his earliest days of political allegiance. In, in fact, one of his law partners said that he scarcely knew a man who was so stiff as Whig doctrines as Lincoln. And I think a lot of Lincoln's ease in talking uh, in, in a manner that pleases uh, Protestant evangelicals, that sounds like Protestant evangelicalism, I think a large part of that is simply the fact that you're hearing a man who uh, came to maturity as a member of the Whig party, and that was the way the Whigs did, did things. I don't think that's the whole story, neither, neither really does, does Richard Carverdine. I think there is a personal struggle that goes on there. There is a personal search and analysis that is driving Lincoln at the same time. Well, but, let me... but, there, but, there, but there's, you know, as in so many other circumstances, what is happening with Lincoln and, and you know, the background to his use of religious language, it's a complex summing up of a number of factors and features that have developed in his life. Now, in terms of that personal search that Lincoln is, is undergoing, in, uh, in in Harry Stout's recent book on the uh, his moral history of the war, which uh, I, I discussed with him on this show last week, and he he took your name in vain on occasion, so uh, <laughs> he's really nice word for him. <laughs> he said you war- you warned him not to use the phrase "total war." That's right. Which yeah, <laughs> I took serious issue with as well, and I think most Civil War scholars would. Um, but he went ahead boldly and did it anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, you were right. He shouldn't have done it. Um, but leaving that aside, he he talks about the same incident you mentioned, the Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, and the the vow that if if the Confederate armies are driven back, I will go ahead and issue this document. And talks about some of the critical ways of looking at that. One is uh, this is a sort of bargain with God, which can be viewed constructively in, in the sense of a covenant in the in Puritan terms, but also in a sort of superstitious uh, 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 dream interpretation sort of style. If mm-hmm. if this event, if, if a red car goes by my office window, I'll conclude this interview. Right. Um, and, and where is Lincoln going with, with this? Is he really hearing from God in the results from Antietam? Well, I don't know. I have not been vouchsafed by God with any kind of confirmation that he spoke with Abraham Lincoln. And um, it's a little late for me to ask Lincoln himself. But I think that Lincoln I think Lincoln is serious this way. And when Lincoln does talk about God during the war, he impresses people who knew him very well, surprises them, how at certain moments there will be a discussion about divine intervention in the war that is really seriously meant. John Todd Stewart, who was his legal mentor back in the old Illinois days, and who later came to a political parting of the ways with Lincoln, uh, was elected as a Democrat to Congress, visited Lincoln in, um, in the White House, and at one point in a discussion with Lincoln about the progress of the war, Stewart said, Lincoln, I believe that God is carrying this thing on. And Lincoln replied, Stuart, that is exactly my thought precisely. And Stuart said afterwards, it was said in such a tone that he could not doubt but that Lincoln had thought about this and felt this with profound depth. 
Well, that's coming from Stuart, who had known this man for a very long time. In fact, Stuart was a cousin of Mary Todd Lincoln, so you know, he, was, he was literally family. And I don't think that incidents like that were simply concocted to impress an impressionable religious voting bloc. But John Todd Stewart also said Lincoln was a kind of vegetable who emitted waste matter through his pores. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, Stewart gave some weird testimony by the end of his life. Well, I think a lot of the times when when you hear people talking about 19th century medical theories, you hear some things which sound very, very strange. It sounds like you're describing something that just got off a spaceship from Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stonewall Jackson being one example. Uh, Jackson's often, during the war, he's, he's depicted as being not entirely, um, how shall we say, uh, a couple of bricks shy of a load when it comes to health <laughs> issues. You know, he's raising his, his left arm because it, to get some balance. He doesn't... He doesn't eat pepper because it affects his right leg. And we read something like, and we think, uh, something is a little strange here, this is a little weird. In fact, what Jackson was reflecting was a certain uh, species of, of homeopathic teaching, which, while we might today regard it as being a bit strange, nevertheless had some coherence in the 19th century, and at least formed a coherent system. <laughs> so the Stonewall Jackson is not simply behaving in a very bizarre fashion and you're you're wondering if you know the man really is is in possession of all his faculties even when when stewart will make descriptions like that um you, you have to understand again he's trying to use language medical language that today to us doesn't make a whole lot of sense but had a good deal more purchase on on people's understanding in the in the 1850s and the 1860s well, what about uh joshua speed visits lincoln late in the war in the White House, and they have a conversation in, in which the Bible uh, that, that Speed's mother gave to Lincoln comes up, and, and Lincoln yeah. recommends it to yeah. Speed, who's Speed. somewhat taken aback, I gather, uh, by this change in his old friend. Do, do you, do you take that as a genuine exchange? I think it is, too. Because, I, But again, step back and look at it. What happens in the exchange? Lincoln is reading the Bible. Now, he did that regularly. Uh, Orville Hickman Browning, who was another old-time friend of Lincoln's, would often join the Lincolns on Sunday afternoons at the White House. And and Browning said that Lincoln would often retire to the White House library, and he would uh, read the Bible there. But, said Browning, he read it not as a religious book, but he read it as as someone who would read a piece of great literature, uh, which was something coming from Browning, because Browning was a very devout layman. Uh, to, to read Browning's diary. Uh, here's someone who took religion very seriously, very personally. Um, when Speed speaks to Lincoln about reading the Bible, Speed says, well, I see you reading the Bible. Does, does this mean that you've moved beyond the, uh, the religious infidelity that, uh, that we knew you had years ago? And, and basically, Lincoln's answer is evasive. It's like, no, I, I, I really haven't abandoned that entirely. I think the Bible is a good book. Take it, take as much as you can on faith and, and, and the rest just for what it is, and it will do you good. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement, at least as the 19th century would have understood it, of the Bible as the word of God. But it is, it is at least, uh, Lincoln saying, you know, if you, if you can't believe it literally, 
then at least believe it in a, in a spiritual sense. That, that, as I recall, it's not the other way around. It says, take, take all you can on reason and the rest on faith. Like, yeah, I'm, and, and, and they thought it was basically just, the same. It's, it, it is. I'm going to interrupt you and recommend that our listeners take all of this show that they can okay. on reason and the rest on faith. And we're going to take a short break. Very good. And come back with our guest, Dr. Alan C. Gelzo, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 